Good morning. Lovely to see all of you. It is uh, a real joy and a privilege to join you today for worship. Uh, Thank you to Pastor Kat for the invitation and to Philip and others for the very warm welcome this morning. I love a church where you're greeted with a free coffee coupon at the beginning. This bodes very well for all that is to come. Um, I work alongside, many of you will be aware, your former pastor, Andy Mitchell, and so I do feel this strong reminder of how we all belong to this family of churches together, and so it's lovely to be here in this part of the Baptist movement. I uh, spent quite a long time worshipping and teaching in Baptist churches over the years, but as you've heard, I now teach church history and particularly Baptist history at Whitley College. Now, I have been told more than once actually that the academic study of church history isn't actually everyone's idea of a rollicking good time, which is astonishing to me. But uh, if you indulge me for just a moment, let me tell you something about why it energises and excites me. I think for the longest time I have been fascinated by the human search for meaning, the human search for wisdom and purpose and belonging, the human search for God and salvation and redemption. I think that's the search that is at the heart of the human life. We disguise that search as many other things but I think it is the thing that drives us. And at one level at least, that search, the story of that search, is what church history is. Of course, yes, we study the big events of the institutional church and its leaders. And we do classes on the popes and the politics and the creeds and the confessions and the martyrs and the murderers, and there's been a few... But as well as that, the study of church history is the study of the people like us and what they do in their lives and their communities as an expression of their Christian faith. As I say to my students, church history is in part the story people are going to tell about you and your church down the track. Church history is the story you are going to tell about what it meant to belong here, to live out your faith here, what you said and didn't say, what you did and didn't do, how you lived or how you chose not to live. So, of course, the earliest information we have about the life of the church, the history of the church, the first things we know are from the writings that we now call the New Testament. You know this. The first group of writings in the New Testament are what we call the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles. At the very end, we have the apocalyptic text of Revelation. And then in the middle, everything we have, all 21 of them, are letters. They're just letters And they were written to individual churches or to groups of churches. And I think the people who wrote them would be astonished and probably a little tickled 
to know that 2,000 years later we are sitting on the other side of the world gathering together to talk about the letter they once wrote. I'm old enough, and I reckon some of you are old enough as well, to remember the era of the postcard. Anyone written or received a postcard? Used to go away on holidays and about halfway through you would think, geez, really must write to grandma. You'd go to the newsagent and choose the postcard that showed a picture of the place you were holidaying on its best ever day. And then you would write and you would post and it would likely arrive home sometime after you with your friendly greeting, wish you were here. And this is kind of astonishing to anyone who's grown up with a mobile phone, with a camera and the ability to take a picture and send it via a text to arrive in the next moment. But of course, in the earliest era of the church, a letter was a big commitment. It was written out by hand on parchment or on papyrus. It was delivered by foot or perhaps across the sea by someone who then presented it to a community. And if it was to then be distributed more widely, someone had to write it out by hand, maybe changing the bits they didn't like so much, carrying it to the next town. The things that we have now are the result of people's incredible commitment to distributing this kind of writing. So today we get to the book of James, tucked in the back behind the letters of Paul. James is our real preacher today, although I am the one standing here. And James is a controversial preacher. Not everyone wanted to invite James to preach in their church. In fact, most famously, many of you will know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, the one whose stance founded the Protestant movement, Martin Luther quite liked the idea of getting rid of the book of James. He put it in a little appendix at the back, hoping no one would notice. He called it an epistle of straw, which was a kind of terrible insult to suggest that it was made of, well, not much. And his concern as someone who wanted everyone to know about the grace of God and the way we are saved and loved by an act of God's extravagant, extraordinary grace, his concern was that James was talking just a bit too much about the things you ought to do, the things you ought to say. He was worried that you might misunderstand and think that your salvation or God's love was somehow dependent on what you did and said. And these are fair points, except that James isn't writing about your salvation. James is writing to a church full of people who know the salvation of God, who have experienced the love of God. To belong to a church in the first century you had to be courageous to start with. I mean, you weren't there by accident. You weren't there because you were born into a Christian family. You weren't there because it was socially acceptable and popular because it was none of those things. So you were there already 
because somehow in the midst of this brutal Roman Empire, you had discovered the gift of God's salvation by grace. And then James comes in and wants you to know that that salvation is not a gift that you get to smugly sit with, but he wants us to ask together that most vital, important question, how then shall we live? We are the recipients of this beautiful gift, as the first verse of today's reading reminds us. And now he wants to know, what is the character of our response to this gift? What is it going to mean? In uh, the eyes of a church historian, the question is, what then will people have to say about these people who were given this gift of salvation? I suspect James is kind of aware, as I think you probably are too, that it is entirely possible for people to proclaim their beliefs, sometimes very loudly, and then not actually live them. And he has no time for this. He is saying, if that has been your experience, what is it going to mean tomorrow and the next day? Now, let's get out of the way the other objection people have to James, because you're going to be sitting in this letter for a few weeks. Some people find James a bit of a, well, a bit of a nag, right? Five very short chapters, more than a hundred imperatives. That is more than a hundred versions of do this and don't do that. Like a kind of strict school teacher. And not everybody finds that, well, gracious. But this is where I want to begin. I don't think I'm a nag, though I have two teenagers and yeah, you could check in with them later. But what James is saying, do this and don't do that, is not actually coming from his obsession with our behaviour. He doesn't actually have a list of do's and do nots that are arbitrary or meaningless What he says in this reading, which I love, and it echoes one of the songs that we sang a little earlier, he's saying, we do these things and don't do these things because they flow from the way we are made. These are questions of identity. Every generous act of giving, he writes, every perfect gift is coming down from the Father In fulfilment of his own purpose, he gave birth to us by the word of truth so that we would become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, God gave birth to us by a word. Through words, whole universes became apparent. And then this word is given to us. We are created in the image of this God who makes the stars shine and the sun warm and the grass grow and gives us our every breath through a word. And now we have this perfect, powerful word in us as a gift from God. 
and what will we do with it? In the biblical story, the word of God, the breath, gives life. Created in God's image, we are those whose words now can give life. If we don't know that, and if we don't act that out, we are, in James's words, like people who look in the mirror and then walk away and forget who we even are. Christian writers in the early centuries typically knew a lot about how to defend themselves because, frankly, the Christian movement was not popular. It was a tiny little persecuted sect and no one was thrilled to have them amongst their community. Some Christian writers became very good at the quick retort I don't know if you know people like that, quick with their words. We often, we often admire it. But James says, this gift of speech, these words, are so powerful and important that let us take pause. Instead of being quick with the retort, instead of being clever and fast with words, how about this? Be quick to listen but slow to speak. A kind of reversal of the Christian position of the time and probably a reversal of the Christian position of our time. When God made the world, we could have been made stone creatures or winged creatures or other creatures, but we were made speech creatures after the word of God. God made you holding this magnificent gift of words that can build up and tear down, of words that can create or destroy, of words that can give dignity or diminish it. We have words that can be filled with love and grace and hope or can tear the human spirit to shreds. When we study history or when we preach the word or study it, we often focus on the grand moments. But James is having none of it because he wants you to believe and know that the very next word that comes from your mouth and the word that comes from you in the moments of great stress and difficulty is the word that speaks God into this world. Of course, I know that when someone stands up to preach in church, we uh, consider those words important and we judge them. My grandfather, with whom I attended church for many years, would say gravely at the end of a service, if the sermon had been good, that was a good word. If it was not a good word, he was conspicuously silent which I guess is a gracious choice amongst many, isn't it? But what James is asking you to imagine is that your words, individually and together, long after I've finished speaking and driven home, those words are where the love and life of God 
can expand and find new places to live or not? How are we using the gift that is the word of God in us? What are we speaking into being? I remind my students as I remind you that everything that is said in this church becomes church history. The story of Christianity is written here, today and every day, not just in this service where I note today that those leading us choose their words really beautifully, but not just in here, in the small group leaders meeting afterwards and in the church meeting in however many weeks' time. We have often shied away from acknowledging the substance of the word we have been given. Over the next couple of weeks, you'll be studying the passages that frankly get a little tougher than this one. Be hearers and doers of the word. Live it out or it's nothing, says James. Martin Luther wanted to pop this set of words in the back of the Bible in hope no one would notice them, perhaps because for all of his very fine gifts as a theologian, he was pretty brutal with his words, famously telling people who disagreed with small aspects of the way communion might be celebrated that they were not indeed Christian at all. In the world in which we live, the voice of the church the words of the church are heard and I wonder what they say. Let me tell you a quick story. I read about it in a a biography. A very famous American uh, court judge was writing a biography and talking about his daughter who was only three years old in, in the instance that he's recalling here. She woke up one morning to find that her pet turtle was motionless in the tank. She prodded and poked a little but the turtle wouldn't move. She called her mother with some urgency who spied the motionless figure and her daughter's frightened eyes and her heart sank Her mother's heart sank in the way a parent's heart sinks when they know that they are about to see their child's heart break in two. So her mother tried to explain death in a sensitive and comforting way, but Zoe just sobbed louder and louder. Her mother was very relieved when Dad got home to see what was causing the commotion. He was about to become the chief judge of the appellate court, so he was supposed to be very wise and good at explaining things, good with words. By now, Zoe is wailing, like wailing sobs of ugly tears. And at that moment, her father didn't feel very articulate or wise at all. He wrote the story down because stories of life and death and pain and grief and words tend to stay with us. So first of all, 
he wrote, he suggested they could get a new turtle to replace him. Well, that did not go down well. She was only three, but she already knew that you couldn't really just replace a living thing with another living thing and hope for the best. Finally, in desperation, he said, we're going to have a funeral for Bert. She didn't know what a funeral was, so he explained, well, it's like a great festival in honour of your pet. We'll have... uh, Ice cream and cake like a party and lemonade and balloons and some other children can come over to the house to play and we'll all celebrate Bert and Mark his death. And she stopped crying. She dried her tears and asked a few questions. She was now even just a little bit excited about the prospect of Bert's funeral, Bert's party. And then the unexpected happened. The turtle appeared to move just a little. One leg, just slightly. Then he opened an eye. Then he moved again ever so slowly. A few tiny steps before stopping and resting again. The man wrote that he just did not know what to say at this moment. But little Zoe knew what to say. She looked up at her father with these wide, innocent eyes, moist still from tears, and said, Dad, let's kill it. (laughs) You see, Zoe had become invested in the story of Bert being dead and all that was going to come from it. With his words, he had created a whole world full of hope and possibility and joy. So much so that she, we're all hoping that she wouldn't have gone through with it, right? But so much so that she had become a citizen of that new world. She'd become invested in that new reality. It's a flippant funny story, but it reminds us, as I want to leave with you today that our worlds create a whole reality into which other people live. And that reality can be filled with God's hope and gracious love and forgiveness, or it can leave them cold. Let's pray together. Gracious God, giver of life and love, giver of the word that brought this universe into being and which gave us life. In your wisdom, you have given us the power of words, the power of speech, so that we too can create and build up and share love. So instill in us, we pray, a sense of awe at what these words can do. Make us truly quick to listen and slow to anger and make us never ever those who destroy any of which you have made with our sharp or thoughtless or mean-spirited words. For you are our God and we are your people. Amen.